Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Hi, Happy New Year, and welcome to the first episode of 2022 in the Great Women in Compliance podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network. We are so fortunate to be able to start the year with you, and Mary and I are just thrilled to kick it off with one of our favorite people, um, who is firstly well-known as as the winner for Best Comic Relief for his Gwiki, but also in his spare (laughs) time uh, is a partner, Cordry Compliance, and is an expert in all seriousness on so many different issues from Brexit to modern slavery to GDPR to data and and privacy and without fail is one of the most engaging speakers and one of our favorite colleagues. So for that reason, Mary and I thought it would be a great idea to start this year with one of our bonus episodes. And as opposed to just listening to the two of us ask each other questions, we decided it was a great time to welcome Jonathan Armstrong. So Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. Let's talk a little bit about your career in a little bit more detail than the highlight of the Gwiki, but if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Thanks so much. Well, thank you so much for the kind introduction, and I'm really pleased to be the first of 2022, so Happy New Year to everybody, and obviously for this podcast, like the great pantomime song, The Only Way Is Up, uh, after I started the the year for you. Uh, I So, Korea. I suppose I was quite uh, a, a tech geek when I was a kid, so 13, 14, 15. And uh, so started off doing that, but was always really interested in law and compliance. I went to university, became a lawyer, uh, and then my sort of techie background caught up with me in a really weird way and ended up doing sort of the techie stuff and compliance stuff from, I guess, about the early 1990s, which makes me feel incredibly (laughs) old, uh, when data protection law was really very new in the UK. And uh, in those days, of course, you couldn't do... um, you, you you couldn't do that as your sole career. There wasn't enough data protection work around. There wasn't enough compliance work around to uh, you know to buy your lunch. So uh, ended up having a sort of fairly broad legal practice. And then from about two thousand, I guess there was enough work for you to be able to focus on on technology and compliance. And I think uh, shortly after that, in about 2001, 2002, I went on secondment to a large US multinational from the law firm I was with at the time to do a really large transaction for them, which was just very, very uh, weird. Basically, the my equivalent in-house in the organization had a medical health issue. So, I had to step into his shoes and do a four to five billion dollar transaction from Mm. never having done anything in that (laughs) space at all and there was obviously a lot of compliance aspects to that a lot of technology aspects to that and so I think that was the point really at which my uh, work became 
sort of truly international rather than domestic with an interest in other countries. So that's probably lost you at least 10% of your listeners with the first question. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry for that. <laughs> but, but you did ask. <laughs> uh, Jonathan, excellent. And I can certainly relate on the data privacy side. When I was studying uh, data privacy in New Zealand in the year 2003, I studied it as what was called a special topic at the time, meaning it was not on the regular programming at university. Um, it would later become a standard topic, of course, um, but certainly it's nice to be in the privacy space just as it's teetering on the brink. And so for anyone in the United States um, who would like to be teetering on the brink, I would suggest for you that data privacy uh, is going to be a good area for you to be uh, looking into given the likelihood of advancements in data privacy here. Um, so, Jonathan, very serious question for you next. I'd like to ask, how did it feel when you were advised you won the Gwiki for Best Comic Relief? It, it, was, a, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. Uh, I'm, it, it's a shame that due to covid I missed the gala dinner, and uh, also the statuette doesn't seem to have reached me yet. Presumably, oh, with oh, the uh, logistics issues that we've had over <laughs> uh, over the pandemic. Um, but uh, I, I mean, it, joking aside, it was genuinely an honour. I think. I think mm. if you try and communicate with people about compliance and its importance. Different people do that in different styles. Mm. As you two both know, my style tends to be, let's just say, somewhat irreverent at times. <laughs> and and maybe that makes some people listen to messages that they wouldn't ordinarily listen to. And mm. and um and and I, you know, that's obviously my style. I think one of the things. I suppose I don't like the word be authentic because I think the words <laughs> be authentic are somehow not authentic <laughs> enough themselves. But, mm -hmm. um, but, I, but I suppose from my vast uh, increasing age, looking backwards, I think that is maybe one of the things uh, I am glad I did. I think I was... I think it's hard to be somebody else in a business mm. world, uh, in, in the business world. And I know some people who, you know, with the um, Theranos prosecution, you know, we've had the the resounding words in our head, you know, fake it until you make it. Mm. But I think when you're in a compliance role, when you're in a legal role, that must be bad advice, wasn't it? Mm. You, you, mm -hmm. It must be best to be your sort of, true self then it then it reduces a load of complications and so another long-winded answer to try and get rid of another 10 percent but I was <laughs> <laughs> I, I was very honored and it's lovely to have that recognition so thank you both for that well, I've got another one that's going to get that ten percent back for sure right now, um, <laughs> and it will not need a short. It will not need a long answer at all. But you know, what does Brexit mean these days to you? Uh, you could rearrange the words "crash" and "car" to a to a phrase of your choice. I think, from a compliance point of view, it certainly complicates everybody's daily lives. You know, for example, just to give you two examples. 
uh, I guess a lot of listeners will have been coming uh, will have come across the the Kronos data breach at the end of the year. So uh, a, a data breach that affected, I think, most of the Fortune uh, thousand, where uh, a time record system was compromised. Just to give you an indication, in the pre-Brexit world, it would have been relatively easy make a report to one regulator for some of our clients, the UK. Mm. And you can, if you like, automatically, that, that, that notification gets automatically cut and pasted into other GDPR jurisdictions. In the post-GDPR world, that's hugely more difficult. It isn't as simple as making reports to the UK and an EU regulator for all sorts of complicated reasons. So in work terms, that probably multiplies the amount of work by a factor of four, let's say. And mm. given that you only have 72 hours to make the report, mm. that's that's a really, really considerable investment of effort. I mean, to look at something else I've been looking at for a client this morning, the sanctions regime, you know, this, uh, the uh, I was looking at Libyan sanctions, for example. They're more or less the same as the EU, but there are some subtle differences. And of course, in countries like Libya, the UK has a history with Libya that some parts of the EU do not. So we're likely to see a divergence, I think, in areas like sanctions, in areas like supply chain due diligence, because, for example, you know, Libya has a large forced labor population, and the UK believes that it is the UK's job and has been the UK's job since the 1800s to speak out against slavery. And that's reflected in the legislation that we adopt, which, which affects you know, Libya and China and, uh, to a lesser extent, Russia. So, so I, without being over-political, it's hard to identify any benefits, and it is easy to identify a whole load of downsides. And they don't just affect us in our, in our daily life, you know, ordering wine from France or, 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 or <laughs> stuff like that, um, which is obviously, some might say, uh, the biggest concern for our current prime minister. But it affects <laughs> us, it affects us in, in, our, in our business lives as well. And, and it adds to the burden of compliance officers at a time when they don't need it. Mm. Thank you for that, Jonathan. That's really interesting. And certainly for those of us not living in the region, um, just hearing about the impact on daily life is uh, something that's it's more difficult for us to relate to. So appreciate that insight and sharing of experience. Now, tapping yeah. into your uh, data privacy skill set, a lot of our listeners are compliance officers at multinational companies. So what is something that you would say that uh, multinational companies need to keep an eye on when thinking about data privacy in 2022? I think 2022 will continue to be uh, a year in which regulators really focus on enforcement and focus particularly on enforcement around transparency. So as we sit here today, there's uh, just over 1.3 billion euros of fines levied already, uh, some 1,200 
investigations have led to fines. But that doesn't tell the whole story. I think we're seeing regulators increasingly intervene in making people do things which may or may not be a fine. And I think we're increasingly seeing individuals use their GDPR rights uh, to try and get corporations to do things differently. So, for example, one of those areas where we're seeing quite a lot of that is in internal investigations. If you have a whistleblower report, you obviously owe duties under whistleblowing legislation in many countries to the whistleblower. You owe duties under debt protection laws uh, to the whistleblower, but you also owe duties to those whistleblowed against. And we've seen individuals um, you know, create law in this area, commonly those associated with Russian oligarchs who tend to be mm. uh, litigious and have the money to make law. But for example, in one case, uh, you know, Group A was investigating Group B. It's a fight between Russian oligarchs o- over Cypriot assets. But they used the UK courts to get progress on the investigation, Group B from Group A. We've seen GDPR used in connection with the Trump-Russia dossier. We've seen people use GDPR rights in ways that I think the legislators didn't truly um, comprehend. I can remember uh, I, I was on a number of consultation groups for GDPR. I can remember meeting with the uh, a leading MEP and explaining to them that things like the fight against money laundering, the fight against terrorism, can be hampered by GDPR rights. And it was like, uh, a, you know, a revelation to him. Explain to me how GDPR isn't unanimously a good thing. And I'm not being wise after the event. I said, you will get individuals who try and forget their past to get through um, money laundering tests, to get into the uh, banking system, to acquire corporations. I'm not sure that threat had the attention it deserved at the time, but it does impact compliance officers in their daily lives. You know, looking back to Libya, for example, I know that there are individuals associated with former Libyan regimes that have used GDPR to tidy up their past. So if I'm dealing with entities in that country, how can I ever be assured that I'm not dealing with somebody who was responsible for, for mass genocide? And, and, and most corporations do not want to be associated with, with mass genocide. So, so a bit of a rant, but, but, but GDPR, I think, uh, has been used by individuals for, for good as well as for bad. We're seeing a lot of trivial data breach claims at the moment. We're seeing a lot of claims from people because of the cookies that are used on websites. And that's not to say that protecting people's data isn't important. It is. That's not to say that being non-transparent and moving people's data through cookies and selling it isn't a bad thing because it is, but but we somehow seem to have lost that sense of proportionality sometimes, uh, sometimes along the road. Um, 
and maybe two other things that I'd highlight. Again, as I said, transparency will be the underlying theme of GDPR enforcement in 2022. That'll be uh, being transparent to our employees. That'll be being transparent to our customers, to those we do business with. And the other real challenge with that is AI. I think a lot of organizations are using AI or pseudo-AI machine learning dressed up as AI for all sorts of things, like as a first sift when recruiting, for example. And I think one of the big trends we're going to see in 2022 is regulators say, okay, you're using AI, explain to us how you're using it and what the algorithm is. And for a lot of corporations, they're going to say, we don't know. We buy that from XYZ provider. XYZ provider won't tell us the basis on which the algorithm works. And that's going to cause a whole load of issues for corporations because they're not being transparent and because some algorithms build in prejudices. They exclude uh, certain names because they think that name predicates that an individual is from a particular ethnic group, for example. They may favor male employees versus female. They may reinforce the prejudices of those building the system or designing the system or configuring the system. So I think we've already seen some tensions in Italy, for example, with the with the uh, Granta, the, the, the Italian data protection regulator, over food delivery apps and the way in which they discriminate against uh, employees and, uh, and riders. And my prediction will be, if you're looking for wild predictions, that 2022 will be the year that, that, that regulators really focus in on AI and look at that as a, 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 a somewhere where compliance professionals have to get much better at understanding how AI is working and can't just use the it's all in a magic box defense, which I see many corporations try to rely on at the moment. Wow. Well, that's a lot. And it actually actually kind of dovetails into my next question. I'm not sure if there's anything else that you would want to add on this, but as we're all, you know, it's the beginning of 2022 and, you know, many of us at large international companies are trying to get our ducks in a row. um, You know, what are you seeing as outside of the issues you mentioned, that would be some of the key issues. One one for me is that you and I have spoken about is the EU whistleblower, the new whistleblower directive and all of the contradictory information. So I wasn't sure if there's any other, you know, you've talked about AI, some of the data issues, and I thought, you know, are there any other things you think we really need to get ourselves thinking about right now? Yeah, I think whistleblower, whistleblowing is huge. And of course, many whistleblowers are genuine. Some of them are not. We've already seen a case, uh, as, as you know, under the directive, some countries could change their law earlier than the uh, December deadline. So we've already had our first case of a disaffected employee choose to take a whole load of documents, share it with the media and say, aha, I'm a protected whistleblower under the new laws. Uh, we've seen a case in Luxembourg where the uh, courts have uh, criticized 
somebody who seems to be a genuine whistleblower for doing the same. So I think there are some tensions uh, in in the EU over whistleblowing, and they will be accentuated by the directive. We've already alluded to supply chain issues, modern slavery. Do not underestimate how strongly many in the UK Parliament, for example, feel about forced labour issues in China. That will be a big issue in 2022. There's broad cross-party consensus for that in the UK. The UK is looking to use what influence it has left in Europe, which might be minuscule, uh, to try and force the rest of Europe into bringing uh, um, anti-slavery legislation in place. Some in Europe are keen to do so, others less so. Um, ESG is obviously a big area, but again, I see missteps from corporations. You know, this whole... um, we use renewable energy and we are kinder to the planet type thread, I think is problematical. Uh, some of you who've, uh, who are insomniacs will have read my blog on that, where we looked at some issues around green energy. You know, solar isn't necessarily kinder to the planet. If you're producing your solar panels using forced labor uh, from China who are being made to break, rocks and you're using energy in in China. There's a study, I think, in Hong Kong looking at the the good to the climate with a a conventionally powered vehicle versus an electronically powered vehicle. And there's only a very minimal difference when you factor in the environmental harm of production of the battery, etc. And the fact that a lot of electricity isn't produced in a green or clean way. So I think that whole area around false promises with the best of intentions uh, will will haunt uh, some compliance professionals this year. Um, I guess the whole Me Too piece, I don't think, has gone away. Uh, we still see investigations that amaze me. You know, um, I won't go into details, but um, an investigation where the CEO of a corporation every year at the annual party would favor an employee by, in biro, writing his room number on the girl's arm. Uh, And she knew that that was her opportunity to go to the CEO's hotel room um, with consequences if she did and consequences if she didn't. I mean, really? I, 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 I knew that thing happened in the, in the 1800s. I was shocked to find that that was happening in major corporations three or four or five years ago. So I think the whole, ESG, uh, the, the whole Me Too piece hasn't gone away. And I wonder if working from home makes some of that stuff worse, not better. I think, you know, just because you can't harass somebody face-to-face doesn't mean to say you can't harass them. And I think a lot of organizations will struggle with the huge amounts of tracking that they've allowed managers to do, whether that be 
over Zoom calls, whether that be through using Office 365 functionality to track people. And again, a lot of that is going to be discriminatory, isn't it? You know, because those who are primary carers may have different working patterns to those who are not. And I know that one employee representative body, I spoke just before the break with them at a conference. I know that's absolutely on their 2022 agenda. And the way in which technology is enabling discrimination and enabling bullying. And again, that's something I think most compliance professionals uh, maybe aren't alive to. And I think a lot of a lot of organizations were forced into, you know, you can call it enforced digital transformation. You know, in March last year, they had to close the office. We had to move online. We don't have an option. Uh, we can only use Teams. We can only use Zoom, whatever that decision might have been. But they didn't look at the consequences. And regulators may have been sympathetic to that in March, April, May. They're not sympathetic to that a year later. So the good organizations I see are backfilling the decisions that they made then and thinking, so what are the consequences in terms of um, primary carers, in terms of if we have bad apples in the workplace, we've given them more access to data, et cetera, et cetera. They're looking at those risks. And, and I'd certainly say that has to be on most people's agenda. We know that some form of hybrid working, some form of w working from home is, is the future. So you've got to build the checks and balances into those systems. Uh, and, and now there's, there's, there's no option other than to do that, I think. Mm. A lot so that of, was a more um, depressing answer, wasn't it? <coughs> no, not, a, not at all. I think it's really important. Um, in compliance that we are alive to reality um, and being too Pollyanna about things is not going to help us at all. It's like, you know, thinking that if we sweep all our problems under the carpet and ignore whistleblowers, they'll just go away. We need to be conscious of them and, and thinking about them. And so, you know, reflecting on what you've just said there, Jonathan, it, it sounds to me like um, transparency and accountability are two key themes. Um, across different subject matter areas. And so what we should be asking ourselves, are, you know, do we understand how things work? Do we understand the true outcome and effects of what we're doing? Um, are we telling the right people? Are we giving uh, accurate and up-to-date and relevant information to people? And just because we can withhold information, um, is that in fact the right thing to do? So being very honest with ourselves about questions like that. So Jonathan, one of the things that I've noticed when uh, you and I prepare to speak together at conferences, which is uh, you know often amongst the highlight of, of my year is when we get to work together preparing. When we're in the process of, um, in a very rushed way, pu putting together our outline and notes and coming up with a last-minute plan, um, you always have fantastic, <clears throat> excuse me, stories to tell. And um, no matter how rushed we are in the moment, um, it's always a thrill for me um, and usually a laugh to hear your stories. So. 
Um, I'd love to hear from you about your favorite compliance disaster that uh, you can talk about publicly. Well, I, I'll give you an exclusive. I don't think I've told this story publicly before, but I guess it's it's better that I expose my own failings rather than any of my clients. So the very first court hearing I did, um, I'd uh, just become a lawyer and a kind family member had given me a briefcase with a combination lock. So I trotted along to court to do my very first hearing and in the panic of the moment, forgot the combination number. <laughs> uh, it, it, it turned out subsequently that I'd remembered it, but the lock had, had stuck. So oh. all my papers for the hearing were there. And of course, this was a, a list where the judge just literally takes cases in on a, you know, you don't get time to settle. You literally appear, open your case, go. And I couldn't open the case at all. So I started off by saying, give me one moment, uh, Judge. Judge, could I, Your Honor, could I have a, a moment? And um, that failed. And he kept saying, uh, you know, open your case. And I think, you know, in both senses of the word. <laughs> and I was frazzled enough. And I just said, just shut up to oh. the judge <laughs> so that I could concentrate on the case. And, and I did have a moment when I thought that was the start and end of my legal career. And the judge, thankfully, did give me a moment, didn't say anything about it at oh. all. But then maybe about three weeks later, I'd then done, I don't know, another four or five hearings Needless to say, with a different briefcase, I, uh, uh, if it was vid video, I would show you my new briefcase, which to this day does not have a combination lock on it. And, the, um, and, and I was at a hearing, an uncontested hearing, where the judge said, how are you settling in, Mr. Armstrong? How's it going in your career? Have you told any other judges to shut up? since we last spoke. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a good one. <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing for a second, but it actually brings us to a, a kind of a great segue to my next question. Um, because generally, I think of you as somebody who does an excellent job of networking and building your relationships. And I'm sure this was an unforgettable one for you. But, uh, <laughs> although you're not in-house, like I said, you do such a good job of that. You know, what tips do you have for people who you know, to do that. I mean, you, you've built friendships with both of us and so many of us in, in, yeah. in this community, um, even at the same time where you've actually been, you know, working, um, you know, it, you know, trying to promoting or you're a sponsor or something. So how do you, how do you negotiate it as well as you do? Well, I think it's back to an earlier answer, isn't it? I think you've got to be yourself, really. And I think one of the things that I think great networkers do i'm not sure i'm in that category but you know the two of you people like jay rose and i think see the bigger picture really and oftentimes i think people who are not good at networking are um very short term and looking at what's in it for them and moving on to the next person where they think they've got an opportunity or a potential sale and i i 
that's just not my style, really. I think when one time uh, I was hosting an event which mattered to a lot of people. It was a law firm and we'd taken over a law firm. One of the things we did just as an experiment is we looked at people who weren't networking and tried to bring them into groups and find out why they weren't networking. And actually, you can commonly identify you know, they tend to stand at the edge of the room rather than in the middle. And they tend to, you know, fiddle with their mobile phones. And 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 I think it behoves all of us, doesn't it? In, you know, if we're in a network like SCCE, the whole purpose for some people being there is to network and to get a group of peers. And I do think that events like the you know, the volunteering sessions are, are, are great for that. You know, I can remember the first SCC event I went to and it was in a you know I'm from the UK it was in Chicago I don't know many people in Chicago or didn't I knew I think one person at the conference at the time and and the volunteering sessions were really good for me to get to know people and I think we all should play our part I think to network with people um what one of the things we did as soon as the pandemic hit, which I'm most proud of, I think, my time at Cordray, is we had an initiative to work out all of the people that we knew, whether they'd been clients or not, who were in transition. I can remember my father being out of work during the recession. I can remember it being a really lonely place that some of his so-called friends didn't come to call. And... I think that particularly hit people during the pandemic who were out of work. They'd lost the opportunity to network and they were losing some of their skills, which would put them back into the market. You know, the the ability to talk to people, the ability to have a pseudo interview over Zoom, et cetera. So we we reached out to the people that we knew who were in that position and 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 I'm super glad we did and then obviously we we've all been involved in some more formal uh systems to try and 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 help people in that position but i think and and that's you know genuinely not with an eye to gain i think sometimes you have to do things where you don't necessarily benefit but you know that the you know you know that if you show I don't want to sound cliched, but if you show kindness to people, then then generally you 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 get kindness back. So I think a lot of it is about looking at the bigger picture and not being too self-interested. Mm. And I think people recognize that. And I and, and I think that that you can, you know, if not do good for the world, then do good for your tiny piece of the world. Yeah, I think kindness is never cliche. Um, there's a little phrase I like. Uh, that is kindness is always in fashion. Um, and I think it's so true. I knew um, you'd say it better than me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jonathan, the time has gone so fast. We've got just one more question for you to wrap up our episode today. What is a message that you have for male allies of great women in compliance? I think, again, it gets back to that be yourself. Um, I don't know. I don't know whether we've got time for another story, but um, uh, I, I, I tell you what, it is not. I, I, I got on a, a on a on a plane 
just just before lockdown stopped us doing all of that stuff, cast your mind back, remember what a plane looked like. And there was one of these road warrior type people, you know, these people who are really gruff and grunt as they're coming up the aisle with more luggage than they're permitted. And, you know, I'm more important than the rest of the plane, therefore I can have more luggage. And the stewardess, I only tell you because it's relevant to the story, who was, uh, uh, um, what, what would the word be? Very pretty. Um, the stewardess was facing me back to him as he came in, and he literally grunted at her like, <clears throat> like that. And she turned around and said, excuse me, I seem to be in your way. And he said, with a, something worse to the effect of, with a face like yours, my dear, you can stand in my way all day long. And then, yeah. of course, his corporate training kicked in. And he said, uh, I realize how that must have sounded versus what I meant it to mean, yeah. which was. Mm. And almost tried to argue his way out of it. And I think I know the corporation that employed him. He was a, a, an executive just because of his baggage tags mm. at a large U.S. corporation. And the stewardess put her hand on his shoulder and said to him, let's call him Mr. X, my dear Mr. X, I know exactly what you meant. Why don't you sit down uh, and... Uh, I don't think she said we'll deal with that later, but she had this beautiful, almost menace about her. Mm. Uh, and then she turned to me and said, we're going to have a nice flight and winked. Uh, mm. She literally winked at me. Mm. Then, then the next thing was the drinks trolley came and she came and said, you know, uh, what would you like? I have champagne. I have this. I have that. She sort of oversold the beverages and then turned to Mr. W and said, you won't be drinking with you, Mr. D will you, Mr. W? <laughs> I, th I think that's wise. And pulled the trolley <laughs> on. And then, then when it came to the meal, she was like, uh, what meal would you like, Mr. Armstrong? Went through the menu, then said to him, what meal would you like? And he said, uh, I'll have whatever there's the most of. You choose for me. Mm. I, I'm not a fussy eater. I'll, and the whole flight... She had this just brilliant way of of letting him have eleven hours of reflection on mm. on, on on that moment. So so my long winded answer is that it's not that, is it? It's it's not remembering what you're told you have to say. Mm. I think it's more about thinking the right thing mm. rather than just doing it. And and to be really honest, I, I'm not, I'm not great at that all the time. I suspect the other thing is making an earnest effort, even if mm. you're not perfect, which mm. I'm not, a, a, and others aren't. And 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 I know we're short on time, but just very briefly, I, I it must have been about twenty years ago. I got a client because they said, you know, you understand more about these issues than other lawyers. And part of me thought they'd got the wrong person. And then on reflection, I think that's a pretty sad indictment of how some people behave in business. So if we can all make more of an effort to be more inclusive, must make the world a better place, mustn't it? Lovely. 
Thank you for that, Jonathan. Well, some really um, interesting lessons from Jonathan today, not just substantively, but I also like your humbleness and accepting on the ally side that, um, you know, some of us aren't perfect yet uh, and um, uh, appreciate you acknowledging it's a, it's a work in progress sometimes to get things mm. right, but um, I know that you've got the right attitude so um, in terms of wrapping up today, of course, wanted to um, express on behalf of Lisa and myself, Jonathan, we're so grateful for your friendship. We love opportunities to work with you um, and we're grateful to you for supporting us and, and what we do, which doesn't always coincide with your own work, um, but we've always felt that you were a cheerleader of us um, as, a, as a team and individually as well. So thank you. My pleasure. And, and I, I think I was... I was there when Gwick was born in a conference room in, in Las Vegas. And, and I thought it would be great then. And it has mm. been great. And it's been, you know, wonderful to share the, the friendship of both of you as well and to see how the podcast has, has developed. It was, always a, it was always a great idea. It was always going to be really well executed. And it's good to mm. see the, that you've got the recognition you, you deserve. Well, thank you, Jonathan. I just want to hop in and, and, and say one thing is that was very diplomatic for you to say it was a conference room because it may have been at a, at a bar, but I will, I will <laughs> take conference room to the initiation of that because um, the origin story shows it. I also wanted to just say the SCCE in Chicago was my first one too, and you knew somebody who I knew and you came and said hello to me. Um, and I often say that's where I met my first compliance friend, Mary, but I also met you there too, who became a friend. So with that, I'll have send it back to you, Mary, to close off. Lovely. Thank you for that, Lisa. Um, so I wanted to remind you all of um, Jonathan's uh, in real time response to winning a Gwiki. So we asked him at the beginning of this episode what it was like. <laughs> I've actually pulled up the email um, that Jonathan sent to both Lisa and myself, and he starts it off very seriously, um, you know, speaking of his his gratitude and being humbled um, to, to win the award. Next paragraph goes, I have spent the last 24 hours clearing off two shelves in my study. I'm not <laughs> sure how big the award is and whether two shelves will be enough, but I've sent a photograph so that you can tell me if I need to do something different. For example, buy new shelves. Move house. Arrange for the use of the spare fourth plinth in Trafalgar Square. That last one <laughs> at the time had me in absolute hysterics. So, um, Jonathan, thank you for always keeping in good humor. Um, and I'd like to remind our listeners as well as we move into uh, 2022, um, one of the other great supports of our podcast has been Corporate Compliance Insights um, and uh, owner mm -hmm. Sarah Haddon um, has been wonderful to us and sponsors the podcast. So if you are in need of compliance, hot updates, news, um, advice, information, do check out corporatecomplianceinsights.com, uh, subscribe to the newsletter and stay up to date. You will be well served. Thank you, as always, uh, to everyone who's joined us to listen today. And Lisa and I wish you the absolute best for the year ahead. I know we walk into it somewhat hesitantly. Um, for those of you interested in the Chinese Zodiac, I also wish you an upcoming excellent year of the tiger as well. I have a very good feeling about it. Yes, 
Yeah, I said it. Um, and I hope that you have much prosperity and success and love in the year ahead. Thank you for listening and we look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.